0: well um uh, we are uh, uh the plan today is to finish Romans chapter seven, and everybody goes oh, finally <laughs> but uh that's our objective, and I think we'll actually make it if I show a little self discipline um and uh next next week uh, as you see on the study sheets you're getting there we'll uh, lord willing we'll start romans chapter eight which is uh a good chapter to start on easter sunday morning so uh uh, and it's a great chapter with a lot of good rich stuff in it and i'm sure we'll all uh enjoy it and benefit from it Uh, But as I had promised last week and uh, the last few weeks that as we kind of labored through and worked our way through Romans chapter 7, I, uh, what I was trying to focus on for the last three or four weeks or so is to, is to get the interpretation of Romans 7 down, to understand what is Paul trying to say. And, and as we've observed, there's some difference of opinion on that, and that's uh, fine. We can deal with that and love one another and fellowship together. Uh, but uh, we kind of labored through the interpretation of it. But what I promised you is once we did that, we would get to the application. And so uh, we have a little bit more work to do today on the interpretation of the passage. And then we will focus on the application. And we will focus on the application, uh, whatever your view is. Whether your view is that Romans 7, uh, particularly 14 through 25, is speaking about a believer, or if it's speaking about an unbeliever, either way, I think we can find some meaningful application in the passage, and so that's uh, one of the things that I really would like to focus on today. So, well, let's pick it up in verse 13 and read down through the end of the chapter again. Once again, just setting the context, and then do our review as we normally do, and go on from there. <laughs> so, he in verse 13, he says, therefore. Did that which is good, referring to the law, the Mosaic law, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the Willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on the one hand I myself with my mind And serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Okay? And uh, last week we focused primarily on verses 17 through 20. So uh, let's see if we can remember some of the things we talked about last week. And you, those of you who were here, you got you got to do well on this because there's a number that are here who were gone during spring break last week, so you got to clone in here. What did we talk about? We, we continue the theme of dualism. Okay. Material and non-material identities are changed. Okay. Okay. All right. So we were talking about What it means to be human. (laughs) We're talking. We're actually. We were. uh, What we were into last week was anthropology. In case you didn't notice, Uh, we were talking about the nature of being. What it means to be a human being, and we discussed the fact that as Christians, we believe we we hold to a dualistic view of human of uh, human nature of what it means to be human. And by that, we mean. That, as Christians, we view ourselves we view, and we view all humans actually as having both a body and and then a then a non-material aspect, which in philosophical terms, we usually call the mind, but it refers to that whole non-material spiritual soul, mind aspect of us. That isn't really our physical part, but it's part of us. It's it's that part of us that remains the same, even though our bodies change and ultimately die. It's that part of us that goes on and and remains the same person uh, throughout all the changes that we go through in life. So that's one of the things we talked about. What else? Okay. okay, okay. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, going back just a second to what we were just talking about a moment ago, we, we had this dualistic view of man uh, that he has a flesh or he has a physical aspect to him, and then he has the mind or the eye, as Paul calls it. Uh, seems to be referring to in 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 Romans seven and the question came up then uh, if if there's this struggle going on uh, this this conflict going on uh, who 's making the choice who's making the decision between right and wrong and with this dualistic view you have the eye and you have the flesh and they are the so you have this inner self the soul or whatever and it and it knows what is right to do but but we have, at the same time, Paul says, I have this, as he says in verse 21, I have this evil present with me, as we'll talk about today. So he has this evil that's, that's really associated primarily with his flesh. And, and as he struggles with this conflict, who makes the choice? Well, it's the eye that makes the choice, theoretically. But he, we find out that the eye is, in fact, slave, enslaved to sin, which is associated with the flesh. And uh, and we talked a little bit about, uh, and we'll get into this a lot when we get into chapter eight. When a person is saved, then then he has coming to dwell with him, to dwell in him. He has the Holy Spirit, and so he now has this new dimension. It's not actually part of his nature. It, uh, Christ, uh, we don't become God, but we have the indwelling Holy Spirit with us, and as we will discover, that then empowers. The eye, it empowers the inner me to make the right choices and to do the right thing. So those are some of the things we talked about. What else? What was Paul's conclusion about his flesh in those verses? Well, we shouldn't extrapolate that Paul is not responsible for his sin. Okay, okay. Uh, that's clearly, uh, that's, that's very clear through you scripture, even in this passage, that, that ultimately Paul is under judgment for his sin. All of us are under judgment for our sins. So even though there is something in us that wants to do good, that, that may look at the law and say the law is good and I want to obey the law or whatever, uh, even though we have that and we find ourselves captivated by our sin, we are not absolved of culpability in our sin because this is, we're, we're dealing with the total person here, the whole person, and the whole person is under the condemnation of sin. What else? What did Paul conclude about his flesh in those verses? <clears throat> Verse eighteen. You are a quiet lot today. I'm telling you, to prime the pump today. Okay? Okay? He, he, he's come to this realization that in his flesh there is nothing good. This is a pretty profound revelation, actually. If you're, a, if you're a Jew and you've been committed to the law and you honor the law and you want to obey the law and you want to make sure everybody else obeys the law, you've really got a pretty good estimation of yourself. And through this process of this interplay or interaction of the sin within him interacting with the law, he comes to the realization that there's really nothing good in him. And that's a pretty startling realization for a self-righteous Jew to come to. Okay? So he comes to this realization that there's really nothing good in him. And and he sees this ongoing conflict. Well, let's move on then uh, to the next, to the last few verses of the chapter. And... And verses 21 through 25 really kind of represent Paul's conclusion. Having gone through this experience, having having encountered this this interplay of an interaction of of sin within his flesh with the law that he with his mind he gives assent to, having experienced this and seen the things that he sees, what are the conclusions that he reaches? And so verses 21 Through 25 are his conclusion. Now, one thing I want to point out to you is that we've talked about this a number of times. As we're going through chapter 7, Paul keeps talking about the law. And all the way through, when when he's talking about the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. We've seen how he's been talking about the Mosaic law. The law that God gave to the the nation of Israel at at Mount Sinai. Okay? So, it's been the Mosaic Law all the way up through this point, okay? But when we hit verse 21, then all of a sudden Paul starts hitting us with all these other uses of the law. And there are perhaps as many as four different ways that he uses the word law in these five verses, okay? And so... Uh, you kind of have to do a double take because you've been going through and all the way through we've been talking about the law as reference to the law of Moses. And typically, and we pointed this out a number of times already in Romans, typically in Romans, when Paul uses the definite article, the word the, before the word law, typically that's a flag, that's a signal to us that he's talking about the Mosaic law. Paul uses the word law some 70-some times throughout the book of Romans, and he uses it in a, in a, in a number of different ways. So you have to kind of pick up from the context when he's, when he's talking about the Mosaic law or when he's talking about some other kind of law, okay? And, uh, and like I say, the word the, the article, is oftentimes a flag to tell us that he's talking about the Mosaic law. But when we get to verse 21, we encounter the exception that proves the rule, okay? So in verse 21, he starts out uh, and he says, I find then the law or the principle that's translated here in my New American, but the actual word there is the same Greek word that's used throughout the chapter, uh, that's other places translated law and its fact uh, uh, is right here in, this, in these verses as well. So he refers in verse 21 to this principle or this law. He says uh, that evil is present in him, the one who wants to do good. And then in verse 22, he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God. Okay, that's uh, presumably, again, a reference to the Mosaic law. And then he says, but I see a different law. He uses the Greek word heteros there, which means another or other or different than. And so he says, I'm finding then a different law. And so there's uh, another idea or a different concept of law at play there. Uh, A different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind, and so now we have another law, okay, or possibly another law, and make me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So we have four or five different laws that are suddenly, suddenly brought up here. And and uh, as I was thinking about that today, I was thinking like I was thinking how. All the way through, up to this point, Paul's been dealing with this problem, this situation in Rome where you have these Jewish Christians who have come back out of exile. They've come back into Rome. They've come back to their church. Now, their church has totally changed, and it's a Gentile church, And but they're wanting to bring back in Uh, their their devotion to the law and that sort of thing, the same kind of thing that we saw in the church in Jerusalem. And, And so they're wanting to bring these influences back in. And Paul is writing very delicately, trying to help them understand that we're past that, that we have been delivered from the law, that we are no longer under obligation or responsibility to the law. And it's, and it's as if he's gone all the way through chapter 7 here, talking about this conflict between the law, as he has it in his mind, this, this understanding of the law of Moses, and the sin which is working to exploit that law and cause his death. And he's been going through that. And it's like he gets to verse 21 and he just kind of says to him, you want to talk about law? Okay, I'll talk about law. You want to know about law? Well, there's more laws at play here than just the Mosaic Law, okay? And uh, so, in verse 21, he says, "I find then this law, or and many commentators and translators translate it principle." In verse 21, you have the law or principle, and and this is a this is a A law, we might think of it kind of like he's using law here, kind of like we speak of the law of gravity or the law of nature. This is just the way things are, folks. (laughs) This is just the way things work. Okay, the law of gravity. That's just the way things work. Okay, and you can't get away from that. Okay, and so he's using in that sense, which is why many, many commentators and translators prefer the word principle here as to law. It's just the idea this is the way things work. And he says, What's happened here is I have found, I have discovered is the idea here. Having gone through this, this experience of the conflict of the inner man and the law, or excuse me, of, of the inner sin and, and the law of Moses, this conflict in my life. Having gone through this, he says, I have discovered this, I have found this, that there is a law, there is a principle at work. And the principle is this. That sin is present with me, the one who wants to do good. And so it's this kind of thing we've been talking about all the way through the last few weeks, is Paul is coming to this discovery that he's not basically good. Yeah. People, you know, it's a very contemporary concept, isn't it? People just kind of walk through life thinking man is basically good. Man is basically good. And, and so they really don't understand why it is they need a Savior. Now, they can understand or appreciate the need for a law. We're basically good, but we, we need a law to kind of give us guidance and direction. But because we're basically good and we've got the law, we can, we can work this out. You know? We can achieve righteousness because we're basically good. But now Paul has discovered An underlying principle that he didn't know before. And that underlying principle is that evil is present with me. The one who wishes to do good. Or the one who wants to do good. Okay? But then he brings up in the next verse, the next uh, law in verse 22. And that law is what? Okay, the law of God. Okay, and most, uh, most commentators, and I would agree here, uh, understand that to be uh, the law of God to be a reference to the Mosaic law again. So once again, he's referring to the Mosaic law. And what he's saying there in verse 22, he says, I, I joyfully concur with the law of God or with the Mosaic law in my inner man. Okay, And we'll come back to that verse in just a minute, but I want to kind of list these laws and think about them for a second. Uh, so he says, I, I have this law of God. I know about this law of God in my mind, in my inner man. I know about it. I concur with it. I agree with it. I agree that it's good. I, I joyfully concur with it, he says. But he says in verse 23, he says, I see a different law. Okay? And where is this law? In the of the body. Okay. This law is operating, we could say, in, flesh. in his flesh. Okay. And and when, you use, and when we use the term in that sense, we don't necessarily mean in his carnal, evil flesh, but just in his body. This, this law is operating, this different law is operating in his flesh. Okay, and he says, "What does this law do that's operating in his flesh?" Two things it says it does. Okay, it wages war. Okay, and what else? Okay, and it conquers him. Okay, it makes him a prisoner of what? Okay, it makes him a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in his members. So then he's talking about, here he's talking about, uh, he, he talked about this different law. Now he's talking about a law of sin. But because he identifies this different law that's in verse, early in the verse, he says, I see then a different law. And that law is where? Where is this different law? In his members. members, Okay. Then he says he's become a prisoner. At the end of the verse, he says he's become a prisoner of the law of sin, which is where? In his flesh, in his members. Okay. So, it's probably safe to conclude that the different law that he's referring to is, in fact, this law of sin. Okay. Because he's talking about something that's in his members. So, he finds in this... Different law in his members. It's waging war against the law of his mind. And it makes him a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in his members. So, uh, so I, would, I conclude that, the, uh, and, and you may too or you may not, but I conclude there that the law of sin at the end of the verse is the different law that he refers to at the beginning of the verse. Okay, That those are one and the same law but they are a different law than the law of God. okay, And also a different law than the law of his mind. Uh, and so he refers to the law of the sin which is in my members. And then he goes on to say, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks to be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God. He brings up there again the, the Mosaic law. But on the other hand, with my flesh the law of sin. So, at the end, he kind of concludes there are two laws that are operating against each other. So, when we take all of that into consideration, it's obvious he's using the law in a variety of ways here. He's talking about different kinds of laws, or different laws, okay? And he's talking about the law of his mind, and the law of God, and the law of sin, and the law which is in his members, etc., etc. And as you go through it, uh, just... uh, and I don't want to belabor the point, so I'll just kind of lay it out as I understand it. That in verse uh, 21, he's saying, I find then a principle or a law that evil is present in me. That's, a, that's just simply describing this predicament that he's got. Okay, He now understands this principle that that even though in his inner man he wants to do what's good, there's this principle at work. Evil is present with him, and I now understand that. And this law or this principle that you can want to do good, but you've got evil present with you, this principle that's at work is manifested by the conflict between two laws. Okay, So there's really kind of three laws here. One is the overriding principle, and that principle is is a description or the condition of having these two laws at work. One is the law of God and the other is that different law. That law which is in my members, which he refers to as the law of sin. When he gets to chapter 8, he'll talk about the law of sin and death as in opposition to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And We'll get into another law then, okay? But, so we have here then we have the law of God and we have the law of sin which is in my members okay and so but there's another law he talks about here or there's another expression he uses and that is the law of his mind okay and and because at at the end when he gives his final conclusion at the end of verse 25 he's only talking about two laws the law of God and and the law of sin, which is in his flesh. Okay. Because he's only talking about two. I'm hoping I'm getting loose on you guys here. Because he's only talking about two at the end, I think that when he's talking about the law of God, he's talking about the Mosaic law. And when he's talking about the law of his mind, he's either talking about the law of God, the Mosaic law, which is in his mind, or he's talking about his mind's assent to the Mosaic Law. Okay? So, in essence, it boils down that we have three laws. We have the overriding principle that he has seen, that he has discovered, mentioned at the first part of verse 21. Then we have the law of his mind, the law of God, the Mosaic Law. And we have... The, law, the other law, the different law, that law which is in his members, which is the law of sin and the law of death. Okay? And these two laws, he said, are at war with one another. The law of Moses, the law of his mind, and the law of sin and death, the law which is in his flesh, are at war with one another. They are struggling with one another. But who always wins? The flesh, the flesh always wins. And there are two reasons for that. The flesh always wins, one, because the Mosaic Law is not capable of producing righteousness. It was never intended for that purpose. To try to get the Mosaic Law to produce sanctification in anyone's life, either a believer or unbeliever, to try to do that is to try to get the law to do something it was never designed to do. It wasn't designed to make us righteous. It was designed to show us what the standard was and to drive us to Christ, as he says in Galatians, as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. Okay, That's what the law was intended to do. And I was thinking of an illustration of this. It would be like, If you decided you wanted to race in the Indianapolis 500, okay? So you're going to race in the Indianapolis 500, and you really want to win this race. So you go out there with your kids or your grandkids' tricycle, okay? And you get on the tricycle, and you're going to try and race against these powerful race cars, okay? Now, are you going to win? No, you're not going to win. Why? Well, because your tricycle wasn't designed for that Okay. now some people talk about the weakness of the law I don't think the law is weak and I think that's a, maybe a wrong a, a, a way to speak of it the tricycle isn't weak it's perfectly good for what it was designed to do it just wasn't designed to win the Indianapolis 500 okay? and the law is not designed to make us right in the eyes of God it's to show us what right in the eyes of God is and to clue us in that we need an answer to our dilemma. okay? And that's what Paul's been going through. He's been realizing that the law is inadequate, that he cannot, of the flesh, achieve righteousness through the law, because the law was never designed to do that. The second thing is, the reason it can't be done is because of the weakness of the flesh, and the flesh really is weak. Okay, the law is not weak. It's powerful for what it's intended to do. But the flesh really is weak. And it succumbs to this domination, this rule of the law of sin. Evil, he says, is present in me. And evil is at work in me. And so as much as I want, as strong as I want to do what is right, no matter how strong, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to fail because in my flesh I cannot be righteous because my flesh is saddled with sin. I'm a sinner. As we said earlier, that is nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And so because... The law is not intended to make us righteous. And because the flesh is incapable of keeping the law, there is no way that through the flesh, by adherence to the law, I can be sanctified, or I can become holy, or I can meet the standard of God. Okay, This is what Paul is discovering. Now, he says in verse 22, he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And we've struggled with, this uh, question of whether or not it's believer or an unbeliever, uh, this perspective that he's writing from in in chapter seven, particularly in 14 through 25, is it an, is it a regenerate or an unregenerate person? We've wrestled with this, and and I've shared my position that I that I really clearly believe, and and for many reasons that I've already explained to you, I believe that it's a unregenerate person and, and I know some of you think that it's a regenerate person and that's uh, fine. I understand your arguments and, uh, uh, and so we've talked about that as we've gone through. But one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning as we got into this part of Romans 7, I handed out that, that flyer. If you didn't get one, there's some up here. But I handed out that flyer for you all, the handout in which, uh, in which I had kind of the arguments for both sides. The, on one side of the paper were, were the arguments for it being an unregenerate person, and on the flip side were the arguments for it being a regenerate person. And I suggested to you, if you really wanted to wrestle through this and, and kind of get your feet on the ground as to what you believe about it, it's good not only to look at the arguments for the position you're inclined to, but to look at the arguments on the other side of the paper and ask yourself, can I answer those arguments? Do I have an explanation for that? Okay. And, uh, and that's what I have tried to do over the years as I've wrestled with this question. As I've not only tried to look at the arguments that support my position, but I've tried to look at the arguments uh, that support uh, the other view or that are broad in support of the other view and ask, do I have an answer for those? Okay. And and I've reached a conclusion. I personally have one that's answers that satisfy me. Uh, but uh, but but I encourage you to do that as you wrestle with that. But when we get to verse 22, we we encounter what I think are two of the three strongest arguments for this being a regenerate person or a saved person. Okay, the first and strongest, one of the first strong arguments uh, that we've already dealt with is the question of the present tense, and I've already. Address that and, and and why I don't think that is a problem for it being the view of it being an unregenerate person that I believe he's speaking in a rhetorical or historical present tense there, and we discussed all that. I won't go over that again. But we run into two other arguments in verse 22, and and that is Paul's expression here: "I joyfully concur with the law of God," and then his reference to the inner man, and and for those that hold to the idea. Or the belief that this is a, written from the perspective of a believer, when they encounter verse 22, uh, the thought there of uh, joyfully concurring with the law of God, the, the thought is that that just doesn't sound like an unbeliever. <laughs> okay, uh, it just uh, to to uh, to to many of us, we when we read that we think, well, that's well, that's got to be a believer because you couldn't have an unbeliever that joyfully concurred with the law of God and and I agree that's a pretty strong statement. Actually, the word there is delight, a delight in the law of God, okay? And and I agree that's a very strong statement, And but the question is, is it true that believers never delight in the law of God? Is it true that unbelievers never joyfully concur with the law of God? And I would suggest to you that I think there's a great deal of evidence, and we've talked about some of this already, that unbelievers do. Not all unbelievers, but some unbelievers do. And, 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 of course, our classic example and the context in which Paul is writing, our our classic example are the Jews themselves, that we had many Jews. This was part of Jesus' problem when he came uh, and ministered in, in, uh, in Israel to the Jews, in Palestine to the Jews. Well, part of the problem was he had all these people who gave acknowledgement of the goodness of the law. They were really hung up on the law, if you could use that term. They were fervent about the law. They were fervent in not only trying to meticulously make sure they obeyed the law in every minute detail, but that everybody else did too. Okay, And this was one of Jesus' problems that he encountered, was people who thought that just because they gave joyful assent to the law, that they were in, that they were okay. And Jesus' argument is, well, no, you're not okay. okay. Paul himself is an example. Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, he says. Now, we know that Paul was not blameless in regard to the law because we know that's an impossibility. But from his perspective, that's where he was. But not only do we see it in the ancient Jews, but we even see it in in more recent history. We think of the testimony of men like Martin Luther or, or John Newton, whose conversion we marked this week. Uh, the, this, uh, uh, I think Thursday was, the, was the, uh, the day that marked the conversion, the anniversary of uh, John Newton's conversion. John Newton, of course, the author of Amazing Grace. He's a man who grew up in a Christian home under the influence of a Christian mother. He always believed Christianity was true. Even in his most evil, wicked, debauched state, he believed in the truth of Christianity. But he wasn't saved. Or we can think of John Wesley, who was a minister of the gospel and a missionary to the Indians in America and was unsaved. Didn't get saved until after he came back from America, went back to England, and, and how it had his remarkable counter there on all this great street in London. So, we have abundant examples of unbelievers who love the law of God, so to speak. And not only that, you know people like that. I know people like that. I know non-Christians that I like to be around. They're just good people. They're just not righteous but we all have unbelievers, maybe family members, you know, or, or friends or neighbors or people at work. And you're around them and you, just, you like being around them and they're pleasant people and you know you can trust them. They're honest. Uh, they're straightforward. Uh, they're hardworking. Uh, they're considerate. They're thoughtful. And they are pagans. So we just know it's true. We just know it's true. You know, excuse me, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, they will. And many of them even think that they're Christians because they live such good lives. Okay. so is it possible for an unbeliever to joyfully concur with the law of God? I would suggest that it is. But the other troubling question is the expression the inner man. And Paul only uses that phrase two other times in the New Testament. And in both cases, he uses it in reference to believers. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he talks about the inner man being strengthened. And uh, and then uh, the other case is in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, Excuse me. In Second Corinthians chapter four, verse sixteen, it's the inner man being renewed, and in Ephesians chapter three, verse sixteen, it's the inner man being strengthened by the Spirit of God. And so, <clears throat> there are two other places where Paul uses this phrase, the inner man, and in both cases, he's talking about a believer. And so. Those that, that, uh, that uh, understand Romans 7 to be speaking about a safe person often point to this expression, the inner man here in Romans 7, and say, well, clearly it's got to be a believer. Because the other two to- only other two times when Paul uses the phrase, he's talking about a believer. And that is, of course, true. But we have to understand that even though in those cases he's talking about a believer... Those verses do not preclude the possibility that an unbeliever has an inner man. Those verses don't say, well, because you're a Christian, you only have you alone have the inner man. Unbelievers don't have the inner man. He's not saying that. He's just simply saying in Ephesians uh, or excuse me, in Corinthians, he's simply saying that your inner man is being renewed while your outer man is decaying. Your outer man is dying. Your inner man is being renewed. That's only true about a believer. But it is not only true about a believer that we have an inner man. In fact, that's the essence of the Christian anthropology, right? That's the, that's the essence of the Christian view of human nature is that all men, saved or unsaved, have this Inner man. They have this inner thing that's not part of their physical body but is directly linked to their physical body. All men, saved or unsaved, have this inner part that goes on and endures and lasts forever. Okay? And that's why it's so critical that unsaved people get saved, right? Because they have an inner part that's going to go on. And it's going to live somewhere. It's going to live in hell. Okay? So, so although. In those passages paul's speaking to believers about what the Holy Spirit is doing with their inner man as believers he's not saying that only believers have an inner man okay so in my mind the 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 main arguments, the strongest arguments, the most compelling arguments for the view that it's a believer here, I think can be satisfactorily answered exegetically. Uh, from the passages that that uh, that are brought up. And so I just mentioned that and I, I don't want to belabor that anymore. But you but I understand you said that you think it's an unsafe person. I think it's an unsafe person, yeah. Okay. Now so so Paul has now declared that he has uh, he has understood, he's seen this competing law at work That even though he wanted to do the law of God, he was frustrated by it. He could not do it because of this law of sin that was in his members. And he now comes to a realization of his miserable condition. And he cries out in verse 23, I see then, excuse me, verse 24, Wretched man that I am. The word there could be translated miserable man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? This is the This is the desperate condition, I believe, of the unsaved person. This is the desperate condition who says, how am I going to get free from this body of death, from this this bondage that I have, that that I'm saddled with this flesh and I'm saddled with this sin and this sin is dominating and controlling my life. How will I be free from this? It's this... This cry of desperation. I cited for you three examples earlier of, of Martin Luther and John Newton and John Wesley. And what's remarkable about those three guys is not only what I described, what we were talking about before, is their devotion to God and their or, or what they thought was to God and their devotion to the law, if you will, their devotion to what was right. But what is also striking is that as they live that out, The utter desperation and wretchedness that each one of those three men came to feel. Martin Luther is a classic example. He was an exemplary monk. Within his monastery, as others looked on Martin Luther, he was the epitome of what a monk ought to look like. He was meticulous in his adherence to what a monk ought to do and what a monk ought to be. And yet Martin Luther was so wracked by his own inability to do what he knew was right that it nearly killed him. So before he's converted, and I've told you the story many times, but before he's converted, he ends up so sick, he's nearly on his deathbed. And he's lying there in his little his little room or whatever, in his cloister, and he is so sick, and he is so angry at God. Because there is this law that he wants to keep, and he cannot keep it. And nothing makes him more angry than as he reads Romans 1, and he reads about the righteousness of God, and it terrifies him because he knows that it's right and it is good and that that's the way he ought to be and he cannot be that way. It's Martin Luther saying with Paul, "What a miserable man I am! What a wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from the body of this death?" The same you could say the same about John Newton as he's he's on this ship and the ship is in a storm and it's falling apart in the storm and, the, and, and, and it's being flooded with waters and he realizes he's going to perish and he realizes he's going to perish without Christ and he you knows what that means because he's been raised in a Christian home. And he cries out to Christ for salvation. Or we can think of, of John Wesley and 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 the trouble that his soul went through and the wretchedness that he felt i read this week a very difficult book called riders of the cosmic circuit in the circus and, and and uh circuit and it's story of uh, actually it's a it's a a book about uh three prominent uh avatars, gurus in India and their influence within India. But it's written by a guy who was one of, was one of the top American guys under one of these three leading uh, gurus, a guy by the name of Sai Baba. And, and this guy, Tal Brook, who wrote the book, uh, tells of his experience as he's for a couple of years in the higher echelons of Sai Baba's uh, movement, tremendously influential movement in India. Millions of people followed him. And... Uh, and he tells the story of of his of his process as he goes through this process of complete devotion to trying to become one with God and all this sort of thing and and the frustration and the and the conflicts that he goes through and finally just he realizes he's only got one hope he's he's about he realizes he's about to make life-altering, life-destroying changes in his life. And at that final moment, Christ comes in and saves him. And then there's the story of another guy, uh, forget his name, it slips me right now, but another guy who was very, high, very influential in America, getting Americans, Westerners involved in Eastern uh, type of things, and, and, the, and the story of his life, and then how suddenly Christ just came in and just transformed his life. folks, without Christ, we are absolutely miserable. Without Christ, we are in a wretched condition. Without Christ, we are slaves of sin. And we are wretched people. And Paul cries out in his wretchedness and he says, Wretched man, who who will deliver me from the body of this Now, some say, and it's a good point, that there's there's no other place in in Paul's writings that indicate that that at the time before Paul's conversion he was going through this kind of a traumatic experience. Uh, and and that's true. He thought he was pretty good, okay. And then he has an encounter on the Damascus road, and and of course the Lord tells him he's kicking against the goads and challenges him, and ultimately he comes to Christ sometime in that period of three days. But but there's no other besides this, if this is, is actually Paul's kind of personal experience uh, that he's writing about here, there's no other indication in, the, in Paul's writings that, that he went through this at the time of his conversion. But it is possible, and many commentators suggest, that, all, that although he may not have experienced this kind of trauma that, that some people clearly do experience, as I've given you several testimonies here this morning, he may not have experienced that, but now as a believer, commentator suggests, he's looking back on his situation and realizing how precarious he was. And this is a possibility, too. That's true. Pardon? Yes, yes. And talking about the coming. Ex- yes. And in fact, that may be your experience or my experience. I mean, I got saved when I was a little kid. Now, you know, I wasn't crying out like Paul, wretched man that I am. You know, I was just a little kid. I knew I was a sinner. I needed. I knew I needed Jesus. And, and so, at a very young age, I accepted Christ into my life. But now I understand what a wretched man I was. Now I understand how miserable was my condition. Now I understand where I would be today had I not encountered Christ when I was a small child. So maybe it's Paul just looking back and realizing now, as he looks back on it, go, oh, this is, I was, I was in a mess. Okay. Well, so he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our well, Lord. He can't wait any longer. <laughs> you know, it's like he just, he's been going through this for verse after, verse after verse after verse after verse, and he can't wait any longer to give an answer. And so he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we've already already said here this morning, Christ is the answer. He is the certain answer and He is the only answer. And Paul recognizes that. And then finally, at the end of the verse, he goes back and he just summarizes the whole thing. He summarizes it because he wants to kind of wrap this thing up that he's been talking about all the way through chapter 6 and chapter 7. He wants to get this whole thing wrapped up. And he wants to get ready for what's going to happen in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, he's going to start out, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And as we'll see next week, the therefore there is a reference back to chapter 7, verse 6. Not chapter 7, verse 25. And we'll see that next week as we look at that. But, so he's trying to wrap things up. So finally, in wrapping things up, he says, So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. That's the summary of it. That's my predicament as an unsaved person. Or, some viewing it as a safe person speaking, think that the first part of verse 25 represents Paul's conversion. And then the second part uh, represents Paul's struggle after his conversion. Okay. So it really is speaking about a believer's struggle with sin. Now, I don't see it that way for all the reasons that I have uh, laid out for you over the last few weeks. So we won't belabor that point. But one commentator said something here that, uh, that struck me. He said, if that is the case, if, verse, if the first part of the verse is describing a person's conversion and the second part of the verse is describing someone after they're converted, he said that in reality we are admitting that the grace of Christ has no more power against the flesh and does the law of Moses. Well, whatever your view, and I respect it. And uh, and and I know that some of you hold the view that it's uh, that it's a a believer in spite of my remarkable eloquence and my stunning rhetoric. (laughs) I failed to persuade you and I'm okay with that. Okay. But the question is what difference does it make? Not difference does our view make, but what difference does this passage make however you view the passage? Well, I want to suggest to you a couple applications. if you view it as I view from the perspective of an unbeliever and then and then an application or two that would apply either way okay and And one of the things that that strikes me about this passage and one of the reasons why I actually love seeing this passage as the story of an unbeliever is because what it tells me is it tells me what I've been delivered from. It tells me what Romans 6 is all about. It tells me what it means to have died to sin and being alive to Christ. It tells me what it means to have been through the body of christ 's death to have have my bondage to the law broken, and to be free of that, it tells me what I am free of, like I say, I got saved when I was a kid. Some of you were pretty raunchy people before you got saved, but i was a you know i was you know I was a goody, goody two shoes, son of a son of a minister, you know well now of course that makes me a preacher's kid, and that 's another whole story but but I you know. I mean, how bad can a kid be at four? And Romans 6 teaches me how bad a kid can be at four. And Romans 7 teaches me how bad a kid can be at four. Romans 7 teaches me what a wretched man I was and how much I needed a Savior. Not only that, you remember back in chapter 6, flip back there real quick uh, and look at a couple verses. One is in verse 1. And he's going off of what he's just said in the previous chapter in verse five, or chapter 5. But he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? This, this idea, you know, well, since grace increases, the more I sin, why don't I just sin more? Okay? And then he responds... May it never be. Okay? And then down in verse 15, notice he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And then his response again is, May it never be. One of the things that Romans 7 teaches me is why Paul responds so strongly to those suggestions. When I understand how brutal and how domineering sin was in my life before I came to Christ, when I understand how powerful and horrific and how it was destroying me and how it was killing me, when I understand that, then I understand Paul's revulsion to the idea that a believer would willfully walk in sin. How could you countenance the idea when you realize what you were in bondage to and how now you've been freed from it? How could you possibly countenance ever saying, well, grace has got it covered. I can just go on and sin. It's just absolutely unthinkable to Paul. It's not always unthinkable to us, is it? Have you never thought, you know, well, you know, I can do this because it's, you know, because I'm forgiven, you know. Lord, forgive me. I've thought it. I'll tell you, I've thought it. But not when I'm thinking about Romans 7. Not when I'm remembering what I have been freed from. And the price that was paid to free me from it. Well, the other thing, and we established this early on, is Romans 7 is talking about somebody who's living under the law. And so if, if your perspective here is that this is a believer, or if your perspective is it's an unbeliever, it's clearly the story, the traumatic story, of someone who's living under the law and trying to do it in the power of the flesh. Someone was asking me several months ago, was asking me, I knew I was going to start teaching Romans, and they were asking me, about, well, what do you think about Romans 7? You know, is a believer or is an unbeliever? You know, and this particular person thought it was a believer. And I said, well, I, I think it's a, an unbeliever. And we kind of chatted about it a little, little bit. And, and I said, well, you know, I think the, the critical thing is, is if it's a believer. It's a believer living and thinking like an unbeliever. If it's a believer, and it may be, you may have good arguments there, if someone who's thinking they're still under the law, and Paul has established quite clearly, we're not. If someone who's thinking I can be sanctified by keeping the law, I can be sanctified by the power of the flesh. And it can't happen. Many years ago, many years ago now, (laughs) uh, uh, I was still kind of fairly young, uh, but uh, and I was leading a ministry here on the on the campus here at OU, and 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 there was a young fella who uh, was with us, and he uh, he'd been a Christian maybe six months or a year, I don't remember how, but this guy was on fire. He was he was fun to be around. He loved the Lord. He loved being saved. He loved living for the Lord. And that, that was just his heart. It's just what he wanted to do. And I remember sitting down in my living room one time we were just chatting and he says, you know what I'm going to do? And I said, what? He says, I'm going to go through and I'm going to make a list of every commandment in the New Testament. And then I'm going to start working on keeping every one of them. And, and I said to him, you know, Jay, I don't think that's a good idea. Now he's kind of taken back. He's kind of startled. You know, because that's not, that's not what the Christian life is about. Christian life isn't about keeping all the commandments of the New Testament. The Christian life is about walking with Christ and letting Christ live his life through you. And that's what we'll find out when we get to Romans 8. Somebody said to me one time, and it just kind of rattled my cage, and don't take it too far, but they said this they said, God's more concerned about relationship than he is about holiness, and it kind of set me back you know and, and you know and and I wouldn't go that far, but the problem is we oftentimes we oftentimes get the cart ahead of the, the Cart ahead of the horse, right? The real key to the Christian life is the relationship with Christ. And if I can tap into that, which is what Romans 8 is all about, if I can tap into the relationship with Christ, the holiness will come. God cares a great deal about holiness, but what he knows is he knows it will never come through the effort of the flesh. It will never come through the effort of the flesh. And so Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3, he says, Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? What was he talking about? He was talking about the fact that the Galatians were being exposed to this idea that they needed to keep the law. And he says, he says in verse 2, he says, How are you saved? Were you not saved by the work of the Spirit? And then in verse 3 he says, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? I think that's what we can carry away from Romans chapter 7. Whether you view it as a believer speaking or as an unbeliever speaking, we can walk away from Romans 7 realizing it ain't going to happen in the flesh, folks. This is a spiritual war and it's a spiritual struggle. And if I'm going to be sanctified, if I'm going to live a holy life, if I'm going to live a life pleasing to God, it's not going to be by keeping the Mosaic law or any law. It's going to be by submitting to and walking in the power of the Spirit of God, in which case all the requirements of the law will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, next week we get to chapter 8 on Easter Sunday no matter.